0: All right, people. Hope everybody is well. Dr. T. San Johnson checking in with you. Thank you for coming back to the Onyx Report. Broadcasting today on a number of different platforms, a couple of new ones, as a matter of fact. Let's see. Looks like the... Okay, it's not going through on there. All right, so we are... On uh, Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitch, and we're supposed to be on LinkedIn, but it looks like we're having some technical difficulties there, so i have to work that out a little bit later. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Wednesday, September 23rd, hope all is well. Damon, what's good with you? Julius, what's happening? Uh, I see Rashid in here. Thank you for the, the super chat, brother. Appreciate that. Juwan, um, all right. Kalila, what's up, sweetheart? Hope you're well. You and your your kids, the family. Uh, Malaika, what's going on? Miguel, Miguel, Miguelito. I hope I didn't mispronounce that. Logic wins. There's a number of people in here. Ron, Mr. Wusar, Lee's. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, We got a lot to cover tonight, but as we get things going, y'all know how I like to do uh, please support the show. Like, share, and subscribe. You guys know the deal. Um Romello, appreciate that support. And I'm gonna need it today because I had to watch I had to watch all of the Lovecraft countries and I had to watch Annabellum twice. So I think I'm gonna need some type of inoculation after this mess. Cause this is it's is it's virtually poisonous. Uh, so yeah, y'all need to support it, brother because I'm I'm doing this so you don't have to. Damn it, put it that way. Um, let me see who else we got in the building here. Oh, <laughs> hmm. Okay, uh, Adam, what's going on? So Romelo, uh, appreciate that. Uh, Michael, what's happening? Ah, <laughs> forced window and window in the house. Thanks for that support, brother. Ah, uh, Qua well. all right i i need to have you up here man we're we gonna have to do that one of these days uh, especially on some of this stuff i'm gonna look into that series you mentioned and uh, we might have to talk about that um lawrence what's going on man hope everybody's well officer charles yeah, man this mess is ridiculous all right appreciate that Uh dragomesta um Nah, Lee's. I see it as well. been seeing it for years. I've been trying to call it out, and I'm hoping to give you, brothers some ammunition in these discussions. Uh, Vernon, appreciate that support. Uh, I want y'all to have ammunition because I know how these discussions go, especially in, with the family. You know, you, you might mess around and get to a holiday celebration, and everybody's talking about this, and it can be hard to be the only one in the room to make sense of a lot of this ma- misandry. You know, Because for the most part, misandry is still not a term people are familiar with. And I, like I said, and I've said this a hundred times, I do this all the time. When I give lectures, I ask the room, can you guys raise your hand if you know what misogyny is? Everybody raises their hand. When I ask them what, what, what misandry is, nobody does. And And if it were just a matter of terminology, that would be one thing. But the truth is, even when you get down to the details of the hatred toward men, most particularly black men, Um, A lot of what we experience with it, people are oblivious to. So even in that context, beyond just the letter of the word, uh, people don't have any sense for what misandry actually looks and feels like. So you have a lot of people celebrating this film, some of whom know what misandry is and don't care. But there are others that are completely oblivious and would actually take it seriously once somebody challenged them and explained it. But without that challenge, this just goes unchecked. Frankie, appreciate that support. Um, So I see people coming in. We've got 112 uh, watching across platforms. Please, again, like, share, and subscribe. Cedric, appreciate that, man. Thank you, uh, really. Um, So uh, I'm going to start with uh, my thing. Uh, I'm going to introduce a different category. So we are going to talk about uh, current events. Y'all know there's some huge ones that got to be dealt with. I can't do a show and skip them. Um, But I'm also going to introduce a new segment. Uh, tonight as well. So the show is going to be broken up into four parts. And what I might experiment with is leaving a pinned comment uh, that kind of breaks down the time uh, stamps for when I transition to different subjects. Um, Because uh, I know a lot of content creators have some great subjects and I often want to hear it, but whenever I dip in, they're not on on subject. Um, Most of what I talk about is going to be related in some way, shape, or form, but I'm nonetheless probably going to leave a timestamp so you guys can get to write to what you want to hear. Appreciate that, Khalilah. Glad to hear that. All right. So um, we're going to start off, you know, uh, with our current events because it would be a crime not to. Uh, There's too much going on and it has to be dealt with. So let me get that up here. Um, Yeah. All right. So, uh, jumping in. All right. Y'all know the deal. We're going to be dealing with Antebellum, uh, the newest film that came out, uh, uh, Janelle Monet's breakthrough lead role position film or whatever, Lovecraft Country uh, and the solution to white finance black feminist slay porn. And I'll go into some detail about what the hell that is. Uh, I think we've all sampled it. But we may not know what exactly what it is. biggest thing in the news you know happening in the last twenty four hours, of course, is this whole Kentucky grand jury indicting one of the three officers involved in the uh fatal shooting of one Brianna Taylor in Kentucky, right? And one of the things we found out um was that basically you know only one of the officers officers has been indicted, and it's mainly the one. Who apparently shot rounds into the neighboring uh, uh, home or whatnot. So, um, you know, the other two officers are considered as having been using, you know, justified force. Uh, the, the the force they used was considered justified. Jonathan Mattingly firing six shots was considered justifiable force. Miles Cosgrove firing sixteen, and in one report, is believed to have fired the fatal shot. Uh, with Brianna Taylor is again being considered justifiable. Um uh Grio, appreciate that support. Uh so this is what we're finding out today. And of course, the um protests around the country, most particularly in Kentucky, have begun. Uh it'll be interesting to see how far they go and to what stage, especially after the last few months. But they clearly prepared for this, right? You know, I have pictures of them cordoning off streets and whatnot, you know, a day before, and I'm sure they might have done more than that prior to that. So This has been going on. Uh, They've known this for a little minute. Apparently it took them uh, less than a day, a day to deliberate on this. Uh, And then we all know that, um, you know, as far as uh, uh, attorney Crump coming in, the family got 12 million shout out to Sergeant Dorsey speaks y'all check her out. She has a show on YouTube. um, uh, That's really interesting. And she did a very brief overview um on the uh, law enforcement and the, the case kind of overview um uh, a little earlier today and it was informative uh, but she you know she she kind of pointed out that, that one of the reasons that the uh, family was able to secure the 12 million was because they knew that the jury if it gone if it had gone to a jury would have likely given at least seven times more than that so um check that out but this is what we're dealing with and it's very reminiscent of a number of different cases hell it takes me back to 92 and the LA uprisings, right, all over uh, what happened with Rodney King. So it's a very similar uh, feeling in terms of our inability, right, to hold law enforcement accountable. And when we get to uh, another segment of the show, we're going to talk a little bit more about what that looks like, because at the end of the day, when we apply this kind of treatment to Black men, it's almost standard. See, what, what, what sep- separates Breonna Taylor in many instances is she experienced something that statistically speaking, Black men are primarily the group to experience. I mean, I've gone over this before. We know that on an annual basis, two to three hundred Black men are killed by law enforcement per year. That doesn't even include vigilante, um, you know, uh, uh, homicide. Right. But for Black women, it's about nine to 13. So one of the reasons you have some groups that are very adamant about this is not just about justice for Breonna Taylor. It's about how it advances their political agenda. Um, and they're not often able to do that using uh, cases with women uh, because there are not that many. So they use them for cases of men, but there's a bit of a gap there in terms of how much they can use because at the end of the day, um, it's still Black men who are suffering from this. So they're able to use that kind of political cachet from Black male deaths, but not to the same extent. So Breonna Taylor ends up becoming, uh, you know, that platform for a lot of this and you know, and she and, 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 and she does definitely deserve uh, justice. I'm not at all arguing she doesn't. I'm simply saying there's a different a slightly different use to her agenda, especially going into uh, you know, an election year uh, where she's being used in a very particular way. but mainly she's being used because how she died was typical of how black men tend to die especially when you consider they were actually looking for a black man at the time. But that's a whole other subject. Uh, MLR. Appreciate that support. So uh, moving on, you know, check that out and look at the live protests that are going on in Kentucky. Uh, it's definitely there. Now, this one um, I have to shout out. I, I added it last minute. Shout out to my boy Green Gorilla. He shot me this. Um, and I want to say a, a word or two about it because this is critically important. Right, this is critically important. This is a backlash coming out of the White House uh, to a lot of the last few months and the last few years of protest, activism, so on and so forth. Um, so let me let me I'm gonna take you to the website real quick uh on this because it, it's important that we look at it. Um uh, bear with me one moment. All right, I have to separate it out from here. Let me put it up here. All right. I'm rocking six different screens, so I'm trying to keep up with everything. But anyway, uh, all right, I'll see if I can enlarge this a little bit. Y'all check this out when you get a chance. This is WhiteHouse.gov, Executive Order on Combating Race and Sex Stereotyping. Right. So this is coming out of Trump's office. And one of the things that it does, I only had a chance to briefly go through it, uh, but it points out uh, that as of, and this came out uh, yesterday, right? Therefore, it shall be policy in the U.S. not to promote race or sex stereotyping or scapegoating in the federal workforce and in, uh, in the uniformed services and not to allow grant funds to be used for these purposes. In addition, federal contractors will not be permitted to inculcate such views uh, in their employees. Now, understand this might very well get applied to uh, a number of different types of, of positions, especially when you talk about people who are, you know, uh, who are on the lecture circuit, people who are usually brought in by student affairs at different universities to talk about race, so on and so forth. It could even be used in terms of reevaluating Title IX. Look out for Green Gorilla this week. He's going to do a video on this, and he's going to go more in depth. I don't have time to tonight, and I need to really read through it closely and look at the implications. But the point to be made here is that this is the official backlash to a lot of this, right? And and so it's about to get it's about to get messy. So in regard, he get, they, there's a definition breakdown here, and it deals with at least uh, nine different areas of what's considered a, you know divisive concepts. So divisive concepts here is you know race or sex that's inherently superior to another race or sex, Um, you know, the U.S. being fundamentally racist or sexist. An individual by virtue of his or her race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. An individual should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partly because of his or her race or sex. Um, uh, Members of one race or sex cannot and should not attempt to treat others with respect uh, to race or sex. Uh, an individual's moral character is de- is necessarily determined by his or her, her race, or, race or sex. Number seven, an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. This is critical. It's going to be interesting to see how this is applied against reparations, right? Mm-hmm. Counselor Murray, appreciate that support. Um, right? So this is an interesting one. Number seven is powerful, right, in terms of what they might do with this, right? Number eight, an individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race or sex. Number nine, meritocracy or traits such as hard work, ethic, or racist, or uh, are racist or sexist, or were created by a particular race to oppress another race. The term divisive concepts also includes any other form of race or sex stereotyping or any other form of race or sex scapegoating, right? And then they go into more definition, right? Race or sex stereotyping means describing character traits, values, morals, ethical codes, privileges, status, or beliefs to a race or sex or to an individual because of his or her race or sex. Now, let me say, this whole concept of race and sex stereotyping is not new. The the paperwork for that has been around, And, and there is... There is precedent, or at least I should say there is a way in which black men in particular can employ these concepts. I've said this years ago. I had a a situation where black men were, were contacting me about experiencing discrimination on the job. But we didn't use that language. We didn't know it was discrimination. Right. So the brother was telling me his story and I've experienced this as well, where people were treating him like a threat just because he was black and male and i was saying by the letter of the law this is a form of of sexual discrimination in regard to race and sex stereotyping because it presupposes that black men are inherently dangerous criminalistic and rapist or you know and rapist by nature that's a form of race and sex stereotyping so there is a way that black men can actually begin to set precedent and use these policies to defend themselves. But, you know, we're we're not the easiest, easiest to believe. So this is going to be an uphill battle, but I'm simply saying, you know, when when we look at this, this is designed really to quell a lot of the movements that have been challenging white supremacy and institutional racism. But we also have to look at the ways that we might turn it on its ear. And that, that language has actually been around for a while. Uh, Introvert appreciate that support. Okay. Um, So, You know, keep it in mind, but race and sex stereotyping and scapegoating are important, right? Scapegoating speaks to mean means assigning fault, blame, or bias to a race or sex or to members of a race or sex because of their race or sex. It similarly encompasses any claim that consciously or unconsciously, and by virtue of his or her race or sex, members of any race are inherently racist or are inherently inclined to oppress others, or that members of a sex are inherently sexist or inclined to oppress others. So you can see. Where this is going, right? Um, so, get a chance. If you get a chance, go to WhiteHouse.gov, or you can, of course, Google, you know, executive order on combating race uh, and sex stereotyping, right? So, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to arm us with some information. But this stuff was not designed by any measure to help us, but it is nonetheless what's being used. Exactly, Corey. Exactly. Um, what's up, Tarian? Good to see you, Enigma. All right. So um, look out for that. All right Case that uh, came about fairly recently, right? Four charged in the gruesome death of an Iowa father found burning in a ditch, right? This was a black male who was killed. Authorities arrested three men and one woman in connection with the death of a black man whose burning body was found in a ditch in rural Iowa. One of the men arrested, 31-year-old Stephen Vogel, who is white, was already in jail on unrelated charges and is now facing charges of first-degree murder and abuse of a corpse. Uh, according to the Iowa Department of Public Safety, the investigation has revealed no evidence to show that the acts against Michael Williams, who was apparently killed, were motivated by his race, nor that his death was the result of a hate crime. So that's the, that's the question at this point. Was this racially motivated, right? All right. And you can see how this new policy coming out of the White House can definitely influence even cases like this. Right? So waiting for more information. There may have been a follow up to this story. I only know what I've seen so far up to today. Okay? Um, don't have enough time to go into this one, but this is an interesting video I did find um, on YouTube. And it deals with a black man being held at gunpoint, as you can see, uh, in his own home. Because his neighbors claimed that he was breaking in. Right. See, so, so when we talk about race and sex stereotyping, this to me is an example of that. You know, the assumption that black men are criminals, even when they are in their own space. Right. But again, we have to learn to use that language to our advantage. And that's not a new dynamic. That's something that's been around for a while. So, like I said, I'm not going to play it. But if you're on Facebook Book with me, you should know it's, it's posted on my page. If you're not, um, you know, you can friend me, you know, I tend to, I need to verify that you're a real person, you know, so if your image is not on your page at all, you probably won't get friended. But, uh, other than that, uh, you might want to check it out on my page. And I think I left this one public. So when you get a chance, um, you know, check into this cause it's important. It. Oh, all right. Y'all know the deal with this one There's not even a whole lot. I need to say about this. Dre's a strange wife, allegedly decimated company bank account by emptying funds, right? Uh, TMZ reports that a letter addressed to Young by attorneys for Record One Recording Studio, which they founded together in 2015, alleges that Young took (laughs) $363,571.85 from the company's bank account last month, right? So again, these are the kind of things that take place when we talk about uh, divorce, when we talk about the ways in which Uh, Family court has been levied against men um, and these kind of actions can be devastating, especially if you come out of communities that lack inherited uh, inherited wealth or any ongoing structural wealth in and of itself. Dre is obviously uh, an anomaly in terms of that, but it's more uh, the issue that's uh, of importance than it is um, his individual case. Not gonna spend a lot of time on it, but I just thought I'd put that in there. This, of course, um uh, speaks to what I pointed to earlier, right? Access to downtown Louisville, uh restricted in anticipation of announcement of a Breonna Taylor case. I ran across this last night. They were already preparing, uh, so they knew. Um, a little bit of light humor on this one. Um, Roy Jones, a little concerned. If any of you have seen the video, uh, y'all know why. Because Mike is not playing, and nobody told Mike this is an exposition exposition or whatever. Um, So anyway, um, I hear a few people saying that Roy is going to win. I don't know how sure that Roy is. Okay, here we go. Sorry about that. All right. So anyway, um, y'all look out for that, if you will. Thought I'd drop a little bit of humor in there. But watch those videos of Mike training. He ain't playing. Uh, So I would be very concerned, my damn self um All right. Y'all know the third one has been outed. Right. Another white woman, of course, uh, who came out and admitted that she's been lying about her race. As we have done here in the last couple shows, we posed the question, you know, to what extent is there a benefit uh, to portraying yourself or, you know, mischaracterizing yourself very purposely and manipulatively as being black and female? Um, And I've been told that there are plenty of white men doing this, pretending to be black men. Yeah. Well, I ain't seen them come out, but it's an interesting statement unto itself. And I think it says a lot about uh, where, you know, how race and gender are perceived and what kinds of access uh, to society are available. Um, And I think, again, the absence of finding uh, black men being. Uh, mimicked in this way is is very telling, right? So this is the third one in the last few weeks, and we'll keep an eye out for how many more. (sighs) This one is interesting. San Francisco to give $1,000 to pregnant women monthly, right? City of San Francisco has launched the Abundant Birth Project, which aims to curb the high rates of Black women's Deaths related to pregnancy and childbirth by giving them monthly stipends worth a hundred worth a thousand dollars. The project, which is brain ch- which is the brainchild of Dr. Zia Malawa uh, of San Francisco Department of Public Health, targets to ease the stress, which is considered as one of the biggest factors negatively affecting pregnant women's health, particularly Black women. The pilot program would reportedly provide thousand dollars per month to about 150 low- and middle-income pregnant Black and Pacific Islander women throughout their pregnancy until at least six months after they have given birth over the next two years. The project has so far accumulated over $1 million in philanthropic funds and $200,000 from the San Francisco Department of Health itself. Right Now, I'm not at all opposed to helping pregnant women, that is not what my concern is, but I've said over the last few weeks, one of the things I find interesting, especially during this shutdown period, we're experiencing uh, both in terms of COVID, but also in terms of the economy that we've inherited with COVID, um, is we've seen funds, projects, and grants earmarked on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, and there's a cross-section on the basis of both, Uh, excuse me, Excuse me. Oh, excuse me. Um, A cross section in in relation to both as it pertains to black women. As a matter of fact, a brother sent me another grant yesterday, uh, specific, and this is how specific this mess is specific to black female photographers. There's a special grant just for them. But when I pose the question publicly, how many of these special grants and set asides are earmarked for black men? I don't hear anything but crickets nothing but crickets. I had one brother point out something, but it was several years old, and there had been no reports on whether or not it was still active. Um, So it's interesting to me that yet again, we're seeing policy being used. And I've been arguing, this is actually a form of gentrification within our community. You're actually, in in, in terms of class, you're setting up future generations in in an adverse manner where it works in the interest of one demographic and works against another. And this has been something that's been going on since the 1960s. I call it the promotion demotion thesis. And it basically argues that in many ways, black women have been giving a, given a glass floor to stand on. Uh, Whereas black men have been given a glass ceiling. And although we generally attribute that to women, that concept of the glass ceiling, we can see empirically through incarceration, through employment, you know, through a number of different measures that black men are actually the ones with a glass ceiling. When you factor in education, access to higher education in particular, we find that from uh, 1976 to 2018, black men have half the degrees of black women. So that being said, as education in the 70s is made as the access point to middle class life, you can see what the cost of Black males from K through 12 and from higher education all the way through grad school, them being excluded from this process due to another number of systemic barriers, how much it cost them over generations. Now, this year, of all years, right, where the Black community has not been repaired since the last recession in 2007, 2008, to generate policy that solely works in the interests of blackness, women or black women, creates and exacerbates the already you know, uh, differentiating positions that black men and women find themselves in. So yet again, this is what I mean when I say black men and women live two distinctly different qualities of life. These are the kind of policies that earmark that because this is happening and, you know, for example, last year, we found out that half of America's homeless were black. But What nobody wanted to say is often the majority of that, anywhere from 50 to 90 percent, depending on the city you're dealing with, the majority of that black homeless were male. And a lot of that has to do with men coming out of prison and having nowhere to go. Even when they have housing vouchers, nobody being willing to rent to them. Right. But there's really no targeted policy for black males on a large scale. And this is why we have the black male political agenda. So we'll be talking about some of those ideas later. Uh, but the point being is that as long as we have these, these kind of policies that target black women and ignore black males across age and across class, we're, we're going to actually see an exacerbated difference in that quality of life between black men and black women. Okay. Um, BGS is in here. What's up? Uh, from what I understand, there <laughs> we go. All right. Neighborhoods, race affects home values more now than in 1980. Interesting article from Bloomberg.com. i going to spend a lot of time here. These are some of these I just want you to check out on your own time. Uh, this is not exactly something we couldn't imagine, but it is nonetheless useful to have this information at your beck and call. You never know when it might be of use to you. But as people argue that racism is, is no longer existent, uh, these are the kind of pieces that may be of use uh when it comes to making your point. Okay. All right. Let's see, we got Gigi uh in the comments. Shout out to Gigi. Hope he's well. Uh talk to him for a minute before we got on. (laughs) Like I said, check out his show this week. Look out for the piece he's about to do. It's gonna be fire. Right. Uh this is a quick piece. You know, uh, I'm not gonna say a lot here. This is a new series on Netflix. It's very reminiscent of what I'm going to go into with a little more depth a little bit later, Uh, but it's an example of what is standard play in media and has been for a minute now. So this is Enola Holmes. This is a story about apparently um, Sherlock Holmes' little sister and she uses her sleuthing skills to outsmart her big brother. Right. This is the going practice when it comes to representing males. And I would say across race, but there are particular cross section of things that further criminalize and problematize the representations of black males. However, it is happening across gender lines. There's a marketing uh, agenda toward women because it's it's documented that women consume more so you can understand why they are targeted when it comes to media and other consumable uh, markets. But it is nonetheless, um, it kind of tends to lack creativity and it becomes standardized in a particular way. So everything becomes either about reversing the dynamic, uh, making the female the center and or making the male the butt of the joke. He's the, the buffoon. He's laughable. He's fallen all over himself and repeatedly needs women to come in and clean up after him, straighten him up and give him direction. And a lot of this is happening across race. Uh, shout out to Rashid. Appreciate that support. So these are the kind of things that are happening. And I point this out because it came up at random and I wanted to be able to say exact, this is exactly, the fact that it was random is why I posted it because it's so, it's so common, right? That, you know, nobody thinks about it. It just keeps happening over and over and over again. And the consistent message, even to little boys is that you don't matter. You know, I've said this before as well. My son who is 15 now I asked him at 13, I think it was 12 or 13, I said, hey, you know, have you ever seen a boy or a male beat a girl or a woman at anything in terms of media? And up to that point, he said, I've never seen anything where, I, where that's happened. So he's talking about cartoons, movies, you know, even some of the video game narratives. It's it, it's just not done. The only ones that could beat women and girls are other women and girls. You, you're rarely going to see males win uh, unless there's a subtext to it. And and usually even in that, it's, posi- it's positioned as something kind of oppressive, right? But this kind of dangerous gendered arc is something we have to deal with. Now, there's a a new segment that I want to start tonight. And it's something I've been talking about on social media for a while now. I call it the sacred, hashtag Sacred Black Masculine. And I want you brothers to send me examples as you come across them. But examples of black men doing things that we are not we are not uh credited for doing, you know most particularly humane things helping people saving people, whatever, and it's just because I really want to showcase it, and yet again, yes, if it is of use to you to be able to have that awareness and bring that to bear in a given discussion you might find yourself in, great, but at the end of the day, I do want to showcase brothers who are against that grain you know, because there are so many, even amongst Black men themselves, that believe this stereotype narrative that Black men are inherently inhumane. Um, And I do this mainly because of um, how little positive imagery I've even seen um, growing up in regard to Black men. Um, And it's become somewhat infectious in a way. But there is a to explain my motivations for the work I do. There's a clip, a very short clip from a film many of you have likely seen uh, from Minister to Society that I wanna play. And it's just a very short piece of a conversation. And I wanna shout out, you know, the actor involved. Um, many of y'all know he's one of my favorites, Charles Dutton. And it, I didn't realize when this came out how much it shaped my worldview. But if you wouldn't mind, check him out for a quick second. Uh, this is a scene where he's talking to a young man and trying to implore uh, implore him to reconsider some decisions he's making in his life. So what, are you trying to say, Mr. what are the changes you have to make? Can you just do it? being a black man in America isn't easy the hunt is on and you're the prey all I'm saying is all I'm saying is survive all right I'm going to tell y'all, short as that was, meaningless as that may have been to anyone else, that scene changed my life. And long before I knew it, it's one of the reasons I'm doing this work here. I've been told everything from I hate women to, um, you know, there's there's no spiritual benefit to what I'm doing. I've heard all of this mess. But here's the thing. I wanted to speak to Black men and as, as straightforward a language as I could. And one of the first ways I did that was I went to te- teach at a teaching university. I went to the same type of university, the largest university system in the country, same type of university system I went to, to go find other black men like me. Didn't have much direction, didn't have a whole lot of support and was just kind of floating. But I didn't realize how much that particular scene shaped my entire focus. So I just wanted to give you a little clarity on why I do what I do Uh, And why I don't spend a lot of time denigrating black men, there's plenty of other places that do that. I don't need to. I mean, I can point out things I don't like that we do, but I keep the focus on uplifting us because no one else does. And that scene right there is one of the main reasons why, because I noticed that he gave me permission to do that with my life just by letting me know it can be done. But also he was speaking to me at that time because I was the same age as that character he was talking to. And I hadn't had anybody just talk to me like that. And I implore you, brothers who are watching the show, to do the same, man. To do the same. Because you know you needed it at a certain time. Somebody else needs it. Because he's right. The hunt is on. And it never stopped. Right? So this is the Sacred Black masculine Series. I'm going to go through a couple of different examples. Knowledge. Appreciate that cash app support. This is Anthony Morris, uh, Maurice Elston. Um, he lost his life protecting his sister from uh, spousal abuse and was in turn killed by his father-in-law. He is survived by his own wife and son. Um, So peace and blessings be to him and his family. So I wanted to shout him out uh, because a good friend of mine is a mentor or was a mentor to this young man. And um, I wanted to give give him his just due. But shout out to Anthony Maurice Elston uh, for being a man. I mean, and protecting those he loves, and it's sad that he had to lose his life over that, but uh, nonetheless, um, a positive example of of, uh, protection, something, yet again, I'm told Black men don't do, right? Warwick Dunn, right? Apparently, uh, his mom was a New Orleans police officer who was shot and killed while he was a senior in high school, raised his siblings while in college, graduated, went to the NFL, built and paid for over 145 houses for single mothers like his mother, sacrificing millions of dollars so they could have a better life. That looks like protection to me. But again, something that black males are told we don't do. Shout out to uh, Warwick. right? So just appreciation to him and others like him. And, um, and there are plenty of brothers who don't get the limelight, don't seek the limelight for credit for what they do. So yet again, opportunity to shine light on them, I will do it, uh, just to uh, acknowledge them, right, this is Justin Gavin, 18 years old, this young man uh, is honored for having pulled a mother and three children from a burning um, car in Connecticut, right, you can find this on foxcarolina.com, this young man, as you can see, yelled, uh, you know, to stop the car, the car, he was trying to tell them the car was on fire, the mother couldn't stop, uh, Gavin says he didn't have time to think. He fell into action. He chased down the burning car to help the family escape. When Gavin finally reached the vehicle, it had come to a stop. He opened the car door, helped the mother out of the driver's seat. As the flames grew larger, he pulled three children in the back seat to safety, including a four, nine, and a one-year-old who was in a car seat. Now, y'all know uh, in movies, this mess happens all the time, right? But the reality is you never know when that that car will blow. And uh, or if it'll blow. And so this brother definitely risked his life. And I want to shout out Justin Gavin for doing an excellent job being a, a, a quality young man and saving that family's life. Yet again, protection. Right. Uh, Wiggleworks. Appreciate the support. This is Dion Diamond. Right. Um, back in 1960, uh, did sit ins by himself. Didn't tell anyone about it. Went to prison multiple times for it and it's still alive, and you can see an image of him there doing a sit-in and risking his life uh, with no fanfare, no acknowledgement, but nonetheless, um, an opportunity to shout a young brother, I mean, a a then young brother out, and an elder today, right? Shout out to Dion Diamond. This one, I don't have a name for. Some of you may. This is a a video that we found, um, and this was posted on Twitter and Facebook. This is a young man. He's sitting right here on the couch with three kids, right? And a shooting is about to take place. He himself will be shot in the thigh, but you can see him protecting his kids, right? And on one vein, I hear people say, you know, well, why, you know, why acknowledge what we, you know, what, what we're supposed to do? Um, I acknowledge it simply because it it it, it happened and it deserves acknowledgement. But I'm going to play the video here. You can see what happens in a very short period of time here. <laughs> Shut the button. I will say this. Um, one thing I do know is when, when something goes down, you like to think that you'll be heroic. Uh, but, you know, those who've gone into law enforcement, those who've gone into the military, hell, those who've been banging on the street, you know that uh, when it goes down, you don't know what you're going to do until you're in it um, so one would like to say, well, why acknowledge him? We would all do that. No, I I can't say everybody would. Um, now I would say that in an ideal situation, men are socialized to respond bravely, but it's still, it's still up in the air until it goes down. So shout out to this brother for actually, uh, you know, protecting, uh, what I assume to be his kids, right? (laughs) Okay. Uh, this one, I thought, uh, was pretty beautiful, man. This is a father dropping his son off to college. Um, and I'll tell you, I'm probably not going to post it online when it happens to me. But I'm definitely, because uh, y'all are cold, man. Y'all will make fun of a brother forever. I ain't posted nothing. But I can't say I wouldn't respond this way. Uh, this is a, a father uh, dropping his son off. Baby boy, y'all the door. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. This is so. Been with you your whole life. You're gone now. You're going out into the world. I love you. Hold your head, son. I hope, I hope you make good decisions. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Making decisions. I hope you really Maybe try hard to make good decisions. Call away, yo that you don't hurt your heart and cry out to the Lord if you need him. And you know, we always hear for you. We love you. Make us proud. All right. Shout out to that. Of course, um, makes a difference. If you are a parent, especially of a son, you can appreciate that moment, uh, very differently. Um, I don't blame him. It is what it is. Jay Jermaine, appreciate that support. Um, big poke. Appreciate that. Akira, thank you very much. Uh, all right. So quick announcement. I will be doing YouTube membership soon. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, I'll probably be finishing that later this week. And you can become members on my channel uh, for on, on three different level levels. So keep uh, keep an eye out. I'll be getting that to you all shortly. All right. So let's get to it. All right. Let's get to it. What are we talking about here? We are looking at Antebellum came out a couple of days ago, And right? I rented it here at home. I think it was nineteen ninety nine, um, and this is Janelle Monae's, you know, breakout lead role, right? Um, and as you can see, I just wanted to be real clear and upfront my perspective on these kind of works, right? The problem with this kind of thing is that it, it's not just that it champions women, it's that it champions women at the expense of black men, in particular, black women in particular. Malik, appreciate that support. It, it, that's the part that doesn't. so when you when you take it back all the way to, you know um, for colored girls, or if you take it back to the color purple, Right. And, and recently, you know, if you look at, uh you know, different television shows and films from Self-Made to Watchmen uh, to this the Sherlock Holmes, one I just mentioned, Enola Holmes, the Queen Sugar Empire scandal, pretty much anything Tyler Perry does, you know, even comic books. Right. We've seen this take place with Thor, with Wolverine, with Captain America, with with She-Hulk and Hulk even. Right. you You have this this kind of mass, you know, gynocentric approach to, you know, defining the moral center of what a hero really does. And of course, the representation of the upright character in the story, uh, that, you know, being almost blankly attributed to, um, you know, women and girls in the show. Uh, But with Black feminist media, what you often have is a very distinct statement about where men belong. Now, I'm going to be clear, Watching this was, it, it, it reminded me of one of the first times I was taken to see uh, a film. Uh, this was a young woman I had uh, just started dating. This was probably 1990. I forget what year uh, Pulp Fiction came out. It was the year it came out. It was brand new in theaters, and this sister wanted me to go because she said this was avant garde filmmaking and that I needed to see it. And so I went with her and It was actually the first time I'd ever seen a movie where a grown black man like Ving Rhames was being anally raped in a movie and people were applauding it and calling it avant garde. I had the same feeling watching that that I have watching this kind of mess now. All right. Antebellum, look, I, this, I, I'm i only going to say it once, and I shouldn't have to say it. Anytime I do a film review, there are going to be a lot of spoilers. If you don't want the spoilers, you might want to check out because I'm, I'm about to go there. So it is what it is. Uh, the film in and of itself, um, it considers itself having been inspired by The Shining, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, they said those were the, the, the kind of inspirations for the film. Um, they didn't point out Haile Jerima Sankofa, which is an independently brilliant, independently made film years ago, uh, but it is a slightly different narrative in that film. It's a young woman who is transported metaphysically back into slavery and then comes back to the present. This is a little different. This is far more reminiscent of M. Night Shyamalan's The Village. I don't know if any of you remember that film, but in The Village, it was basically a film about... Um, You know, these people who choose to live out in like a national park. So you would think it was a whole nother century. Right. Um, In this instance, it's a whole different dynamic right there. What you find is that um, it's a uh, Shango appreciate that support. It's a, a they're actually forced. There's a number of black folk who are kidnapped and forced into slavery in a Civil War reenactment park. Right. And so uh, this character that Janelle Monae plays, uh, I think her name is Victoria Henley. She's Dr. Victoria Henley. You know, she's she's, you know, on national news networks, Skyping in interviews. She's written a, a best-selling book. You know, she's jet setting this kind of thing. And she is kidnapped and brought to this plantation. Right. And so in this story, they hop back and forth through her regular life, and through the period in which she's enslaved. And of course, she's enslaved. So there's a whole, you know, group of white folk there who are dressed in Civil War uh, attire and uh, treat them like slavery, you know, still on, right? Now, before I go further, I do want to say, just so you know, this is a film that is written by Gerard Bush and Christopher Wrens. There they go right there, right? And so apparently, Gerard on the left had the idea. He had a dream uh, where this was taking place. Right, these people were being enslaved, and uh, he he thought it would make for a good story. So he went from there. Right, and so at various points in the mo- in the story, you know, it starts out with them already enslaved, uh, and you're kind of trying to figure out what's going on, right? Because it looks like a period piece. It doesn't look like it's something you know that's contemporary. Um, But there are moments where you see, you know, male sacrifice as well. So let me try and streamline this a bit because I watched it twice in a very short period of time and I was trying to hold my lunch while doing so. But anyway, um, uh, her character, Victoria, is renamed Eden on the plantation. And so, you know, many of the enslaved blacks uh, treat her like the leader figure. Uh, And she is often if she's not doing her work, she's kind of middling around her little domicile, you know, doing little things. And and you really don't understand what she's doing very early on. Uh, She tries to stage an escape at the very beginning and it doesn't work. And as a punishment, uh, she's trying to leave with a husband and wife and it doesn't work. They get caught. The wife gets shot and killed. The husband is put back to work. So it's interesting statement there right, that, you know, women are kind of the target of enslavement, right, and severe racism, but nonetheless, they go back to work, and they, and, you know, others enslaved folk keep coming to her, waiting for her to lead the next uh, escape, right, and so she is raped every night by one of the, um, the slaveholders who literally sleeps next to her every night, um, and and comes to her forces her to cook she is branded as punishment for trying to lead the escape and i mean branded right regular brand and out of the fireplace kind of brand right and so in that moment uh there are other slaves that are other people brought in and enslaved in the course of that uh one of whom is a pregnant young woman who's trying to make sense of what's going on she ends up committing suicide and after losing her baby and um kind of goes from there um there's a Kunta quinte moment that she experiences where she's forced to say her name, Eden, um, as opposed to Ralph, Randolph, appreciate that support, excuse me, Uh, you know, where she's forced to say her name is Eden. So they kind of pull back to roots and she kind of has this moment. And many of the complaints I heard from feminists, even going back to the eighties was that, you know, that's, you know, there wasn't really that kind of scene for black women. So this is, I think, part of that kind of attempt to make that up. She has that Kunta quinte moment, where she's forced to do it because, again, in this film, the focus of oppression is women, right? That's primarily, you know. Um, uh, So from there, they flash back on her and home, and she lives in this at least two-story nice house with her husband, who's Black. They have a little daughter, and you can tell she is the central decision maker in the household, Um, In many ways, it's almost like taking Ward Cleaver from the 50s and gender swapping him. Right. So she's kind of the head decision maker. Um, Her, her, you know, her husband is cooking for everybody and asking her what to make and kind of she's she's the decision maker in the dynamic. And then she goes on a short trip out of town and sees her girlfriend, one of whom is played by Gabby Sabidi. I always mispronounce her name. uh, The larger uh, framed actress uh, who plays basically a thought. In, in the whole film, uh, and they're kidnapped from there, right? So she's world-renowned. Everybody's after her to speak at different things. She's, you know, uh, she's the, the, you know, kind of this jet-setting kind of figure. She's giving lectures about intersectionality, um, and it's all this upper-middle-class, Black performative narrative, right? Um, and, and in that, the marital dynamic between her and her husband is one- um, that is very, very clearly the reverse of what, you know, is considered traditional, right? Now, I say this because I've had this experience. I, I dated a woman, she, you know, she had a doctorate as well with both professors, and we it didn't work out, and we broke up, and, and we had a conversation afterwards, um, and, you know, she was just a little distraught, you know, uh, because she was looking forward to the relationship working out. And uh, I said, "Well, look, honey, what is it you're looking for?" And she said something very profound. And this film reminded me of it. She said, "I'm looking for a wife." I said, "Well, I mean, are you coming out?" And she said, "No, no, I'm not coming out. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not gay." She said, "I want a man to be my wife. I want him to cook and clean." But here's the twist: this is this is where traditional masculinity still plays in this kind of uh, gynocracy, gynocratic imagination. She wanted a man who would cook, clean, raise her children, pay the bills and make enough money to buy a nearly one million dollar house that she had already pointed out to me. She literally pointed to the one she wanted me to buy. And then at the same time, she said, I want him to make enough so that I don't have to work so I can be a full time, you know, whatever. You know, she had her own aspirations, but she wanted me to be that figure, and she was looking for the next guy, right? Now, the reason I bring that up is this film is the embodiment of that. When you see, you know, the kind of marriage she has, it's very much around this idea of Black male, again, being concubine serf, right? He's, he's, you know, he's there to kind of serve her needs, um, and the idea they give, they come across with is that Um, If a woman can get that, she'll be ultimately happy. Nobody wants to talk about the fact. And I've seen this with actual marriages that are like that, that uh, many women don't generally respect men in that kind of position. But nevertheless, uh, this is something that I think, um, you know, uh, is is, has become prevalent, particularly in the 1990s. Right. This idea of the female breadwinner, decision making maker and head of household, but not head of household in a single parent context, head of household in a marital context where the man is taking direction and, again, kind of bringing in his paycheck to her. And as even the woman I dated said, you know, your money is our money and my money is my money. So it's this hodgepodge of traditional and yet feminist reimaginings of what marriage or pairing or pair bonding should look like that positions women in the traditional role of, of quote unquote, men and men in the the subsidiary supporting role. Uh, And so you see that played out in this film. Right, and even when she's kidnapped and put on this plantation, all the other enslaved Black folk kind of follow her direction. Right, um, so this is the kind of narrative you get in this dynamic. Right, so this is the superwoman kind of thing, and she's placed in this position. Um, and toward the end, when you when you really see kind of where they go with this. <sighs> When she finally does try and stage an escape, she is helped by a black man who she just terms a professor. Um, He gets killed trying to defend her. Right. And, you know, from there, she manages to kind of get away. And strangely enough, you know, the antagonist, the woman she's dealing with is a white woman she's been. You know, mentally um, fencing with you know throughout the film, Uh, the white woman ends up becoming the mistress of the plantation. So they end up having a direct confrontation. She kills pretty much all the major figures. You know, she kills. There's a a white senator that's initiated a lot of this. There's a slaveholder. There's this white woman. She manages to kind of kill all of them pretty much by herself. She outsmarts everybody by herself. She kills them all by herself, and she rides off on a horse. And the heroes of the film are the FBI, kind of reminiscent of Black Panther. When she finally is able to get a phone call out to the world, she calls in the FBI and they come in and save the day, right? So there's this interesting kind of visual narrative in regard to first having this, you know, Black woman as the center of the story who's, you know, super smart, super powerful, kills all the bad guys single-handedly. And then the FBI comes in afterwards and Black men, both in her daily life and on this plantation are almost kind of like footstools to whatever she's trying to do, whether it's protecting her so she can go on or whether it's, you know, uh, uh, you know, Cooking and cleaning and taking care of the child, so she can go on and get on a plane and give a lecture in each of these contexts in a very subtle manner, black men are presented kind of as footstools. I call them concubine serfs or concu serfs, but it's the same kind of idea, even if you don't like the terminology, even if you don't like the idea, the reality is the perception of black men, particularly in a black gynarchy or a gynocracy what what that what we what I generally break down as uh, a female black patriarchy. That's what I argue the black gynocracy is. It's a female-headed black patriarchy. And so the men are conceptualized in traditional manner. They're just put in female roles. So you're criticized if you invoke a traditional idea of male head of household. You're called a misogynist and a sexist. But traditional, the, the traditional is okay as long as you reverse the genders. Then it's okay right? So when you see these kind of films, this is one of the most constant, you know, kind of aspects that you tend to find. Uh, you know, the reordering of the gender narrative, which is reminiscent of what I'm told uh, Black Lives Matter recently took off their website in terms of reordering and reimagining the nuclear family. But in this context, reimagining it isn't that you remove one. It's not even that you replace the gender with one or the another. It's simply that you replace and shift the gender roles. And then uh, the subtext to that. Is that you develop policy because this is the the political coup that many black women are participating now, starting with threatening you know Biden and demanding a black female candidate, all of that the political coup that's kind of taking place is to provide policy uh, that will continue to elevate black women into a position where they can play out this head of household role, but this time with men in the house you know so it's an interesting kind of dynamic. You can compare and contrast this film. Uh, with uh, films like Django, Birth of a Nation, 12 Years a Slave. Um, You know, you can look at those kind of films, but the difference is this is, of course, um, not a historical piece. So they're definitely taking, you know, license in terms of uh, where they're trying to go with it, right? Uh, But it definitely highlights this Superwoman kind of uh, bubble that many find themselves in. But I do want to point out since this is the subject in this question of enslavement in the contemporary era, I thought it interesting that um, the conversation about it, you know, only went a certain way. So when I started looking around for examples, of course, I found things that definitely spoke to what we're looking at, right? This is a recent article uh, about Ethiopian migrants um, in Saudi Arabia, right? who are locked up, you know, Ethiopian official believes that approximately 16,000 of them are being held in Saudi Arabian, Arabian uh, detention centers near Mecca, about 53 prisons, um, and Ethiopians are held in every one of them. And so they're beaten and treated like animals. Um, you know, they claim, you know, they talk about how they're barely fed and forced to live in filth. Um, they eat a tiny piece of bread uh, in the day and rice in the evening. Um, So this, you know, this kind of treatment we're seeing, um, and there's almost no water, the toilets are overflowing, it spills over where uh, they eat, the smell we grow accustomed to, but there's over a hundred of us in a room and the heat is killing us, right? All right, so this is so these are these are contemporary stories. Right. There's another. Uh, I'm not going to play the video, but I do play this one for my class. This is also dealing with Saudi Arabia in particular. But uh, what they find in here is that they're actually black folk. They're actually people of African descent being sold even on Facebook. Right. And literally being sold as in being sold um, from it's, it's, uh, Saudi Arabia and other Middle Eastern countries. You can also see that happening in Libya. This is a recent article that came out in the last two years um, on, um, I think it's, um, I think I messed up the link here, but you can you can see if you can uh, look up um, uh, Libyan slavery. I think if you Google it, you'll find it. I usually keep the link in here. I apologize. I didn't post it in this one, but contemporary Libyan slavery. And these pictures definitely came out of the article where you see, again, you know, especially males right, being put to work. But there's some interesting pieces that take place in America too. And if you're not familiar with this piece, this is a piece from vice.com, right? Black people in the U.S. were enslaved well into the 1960s. Very powerful article. You get a chance to look at it. Very powerful article. And much like what you'll see in Antebellum, this is real life where um, there are... Whole, so in the article, they, I don't know why they titled it the 1960s, because even the author makes the argument that this is, this is still happening to this day. And basically what it is, is you have families who have literally lived on the same plantation since uh, post-1865. They were not informed that they were free. There are no tech, not, There's no TV, there's no telephones, there's none of that. They've grown up, lived and died, you know, working their entire lives on these plantations. And one of the people that came forward, because apparently the author of this found a number of people who were eventually able to escape with help, of course, and they talk about how the land, particularly in the middle of the country, is so vast that from as far as you can see in every direction, all you see is farmland, right? And attempts to escape generally don't work, right? So in this particular piece um, on vice.com, Black people in the U.S. were enslaved well into the 1960s. Um, You know, she actually interviews people who tell stories about what it's like to grow up in a slave, as a slave in the 1960s. All right? And again, this is arguably still happening. Now, I found this out long before I ran into this article. I had a student in my class. She had to be in her late 40s. And she said she took her father, who was in his late 80s, if I'm not mistaken, They drove out to like Florida. And he wanted to show her the plantation that his grandmother used to work on. And when they got there, they noticed that the living quarters were exactly the same. They hadn't changed. But what she was surprised to find were people who were still living and working there, black folk. Right? There was no technology, no television, no phones, none of that. They were working and toiling on this land the way they always had. And it had been passed down from parents to grandparents, you know, grandparents to great-grandparents. That was something I ran across about six or seven years ago. So when these articles came out. Um, it blew me away, but they're nonetheless uh, still stories that are happening to this day. Um, So look into that if you would. And it kind of gives a reality to Antebellum um, that I think could have probably been used. I'll give the film this much. They do at least um, deal with the realities of how difficult escape is and how vicious the institution had to be in order to maintain them. So, you know, every time they tried to escape, they kind of show you how difficult it was. They show you how vicious and how how abusive and of course you know the people were to maintain it. I give them credit enough for showing elements of that. Um, but the depiction of black men as secondary, if not tertiary characters and as footstools in some respects to black female heroism is a trope that um, I kind of get tired of right I get severely tired of, and that of course leads me to um, our next series. Lovecraft Country. Right. I think they're on the fifth or sixth episode. It comes on on HBO. Um, Most particularly on Sundays is when I see it. I think that sometimes it comes out a little earlier if you have the app. But I traditionally notice it on my DVR on Sundays. Uh, It's about an hour long per episode. And it kind of showcases, um, you know, uh, a couple of central figures. um, But nonetheless, the show is executive produced by J.J. Abrams. Um, you have as you can see here, Jordan Peel. Um uh there's another guy. Let me see. I'll just click it over there so you can kind of see it from here. Um the writer itself is the is the Caucasian gentleman you see posted here. Um this may be in you know inspired by HP Lovecraft, but it's uh, a, an author. Uh I think his name is Matt. Um, who takes this, who writes the story. He's born in 1965, so he's obviously still around. And this is Misha Green. Misha Green is credited for the show. And from what I can tell, she changes the narrative of the actual novel and really kind of, you know, brings this kind of Black feminist imagination to the story, right? Uh, I'm not gonna go through each episode. I'll just kind of hit a few highlights. If I'm not mistaken, I think BGS is planning to look at it. So you can look forward to that. Uh, The brother goes in, y'all already know, um, and he goes into detail. So I'm not going to be doing that. But just in terms of an overview, what you have, and I think here, I think I'll, let me actually um, post up. Let me see, I'll do it over here. I'll pull it up so we can actually look at some of the main actors um, and actresses involved usually would have these paved up already. I apologize for not doing so. Okay. Aquatechie appreciate that support. Um where'd it go? Is that it? There we go. All right. So let me enlarge this a bit. Okay. Uh, So you can see the main picture here. Um, As I said, it's uh, credited with Misha Green being the primary uh, uh, creator of the series. Um, And it stars uh, Jonathan Majors, Journey Smollett, Smollett, um, Courtney Vance. I'm sorry, after Dave Chappelle, I no longer know how to say this woman's name because I keep wanting to call her Smolier. But anyway, um, you can see... uh, Thought the pictures would be larger, but there you go. So there's a picture of Journey. Um, she plays the the central, you know, female figure, and she's up with uh, Jonathan Majors, whose career is really taking off right now. She plays Letty or Latisha Lewis. He plays Atticus Freeman. They call him Tick. Um, trying to get his picture to come up. There we go. Uh, he's up for playing Kang in the MCU, uh, in terms of what I'm told. Uh, he just played in the Five Bloods, the latest Spike Lee film. Uh, so like I said, his career's taken off um and so, um you know, credit to the brother, I'm glad he's a good actor. I mean, I'll give him that., uh, he's definitely a good actor uh Ingen- Ellis uh for those of you who remember watching Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation, uh that's her. she plays in the film um, and she does an excellent job. they don't they're they're really not showcasing her character yet. Uh, They're starting to transition into her story, so there's not a lot about her there yet. Um, But it kind of goes from there. You got Michael Kenneth Williams uh, playing Atticus's father. Um, Y'all probably remember him most from The Wire and a bunch of other things. Um, So he plays the kind of conflicted gay father of Atticus, uh, who is tied to a trans woman. Um, And then, of course, Courtney B. Vance makes an excellent uh, kind of um, two episode uh entrance into it so anyway it really has to do it's a hard story to kind of describe you know and and i'm I'm not going off the book I'm just going off the television show uh basically uh there's this kind of um uh, occult uh white um, uh, uh, organization you know they're occultists they're wizards they're sorcerers and and so they kind of play a role in and uh, manipulating these Black folks' lives for their own purposes. The Black folk in question, Atticus, and let's see if I can center this photo. Uh, Atticus and Letty here uh, are the two main figures, right? And so what you have happening here is it, a number of things, right? It, it, if anything, the the Black family in question or families tend to be bibli- bibliophiles. They love reading. They love novels. They love fiction. Um, And I will give the series this. They do an excellent job of weaving in African-American history to bring into the story. So in the first couple the first episode, as a matter of fact, one of the things if you didn't know about it, you learn about what sundown towns and sundown counties are. And those are basically towns, particularly in the south, that you had to get out of by sundown or else you'd be lynched. Right? And so they show you moments where that takes place. The very first arc, the first few minutes, the very first episode, you actually see a tick, as they call him, coming back from the Korean War by bus. And he and another black woman are seated in the back of the bus. This is circa 1950s. Um, they're sitting in the back of the bus, and then when the bus breaks down, uh, they end up having to walk while the other uh, white riders get a ride from a, a passing truck or whatever. So the realities of day-to-day racism in the South and what they experience, there's a lot of supernatural fiction kind of going on uh, in it. You have everything from you know modern-day vampires to wizards to sorcerers to uh, racist scientists, and it kind of goes around the world. There's supernatural creatures and magic and all of these kind of things play out. Now, if I do individual shows reviewing that, of course, I'll go into more depth. What I want to point to, much like Antebellum in this series, is they center Letty. Uh, she has a, a, a darker skinned uh, sister who who's in there as well. They kind of center her at different points. But the story ends up kind of centering Letty as the, as the hero figure. Now, Tick uh, is definitely heroic. He's definitely had his moments but they play with his narrative. There are moments with Tick where he's volatile and he's he's a he's a he's a veteran. So you can kind of see the rationale for that. He goes through a lot in Korea. He's forced to kill people he doesn't want to kill. So there's definitely a rationale for that. However, his his bombastic, intense, you know, kind of behavior even scares Letty to the point where she has to, you know, keep a weapon around just in case he acts up. There's also a scene where um uh, this kind of an illusion of tick seducing letty and when he start and they look like they're about to have sex and much like a painting she's staring at earlier in the scene of Adam and Eve and the snake in the garden when he unbuttons his pants to have sex with her a snake comes out so there's this kind of sub trope of, you know, the rapist, violent black male kind of playing in that's tied to the main uh, character. You kind of have that narrative kind of going on. But Letty's usually the one that's the braver one. She kind of gets them out of trouble, you know, even against the men's own ego. She kind of has to come in and fix things. Um, And so you kind of have this underlying low boiling idea that black men are are these problematic, potential, potentially violent, potential rapists that you know? Black women have to be the ones to come in and correct and put in their place and kind of you know. So you kind of have those narratives happening with that, and it makes it hard, at least for me, to kind of watch these kind of things because this is such a an ongoing uh, way of this, right? Uh, where you see this kind of thing over and over again. Um, Courtney Vance, who plays Atticus's uncle has a daughter in the series. She's a young teenager. She's, you know, drawing comic books of of black women, you know, superheroes. And so they're kind of introducing that. But she also seems to have a bit of a magical power about her where she can kind of anticipate trouble. You know, so, you know, they're kind of centering the women and girls in a particular way. Um, And what you kind of notice in this is that there's this underlying feminist link uh, between women across race, so far between Black, White, and Korean women, and it's this kind of framing of all men as all women's problems, right? And all women, in a way, share this narrative of being oppressed by all men. No, you know, it, 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 this it, the differentiations between White and Black men, Korean men, is, eh, you know, they're made, they're. A, if at best occasional gestures to them being differences but it kind of contributes to the idea I've been talking to you guys about for a while about flat maleness right flat maleness being this idea that men are this you know conglomerate you know monolithic group because they all possess penises and therefore the act of one group in terms of oppressing another group of, of a group of women somehow reflect on all men because all men you know oppress all women period this very simplistic, kind of, uh, you know, second wave feminist view of men, you know, where men just kind of enjoy this category of being patriarchs where they don't have to work, they don't have to do any strenuous anything, and they just beat women all day, and women kind of have to suffer and endure. Uh, very little attention paid to the sacrifices made. Like, even, even in Antebellum, you can see sacrifices made on behalf of the men, but they're not, you know, there's not a whole lot of fanfare about it, right? There's one point, for example, just real quick to jump back into antebellum, there's one point where there's a woman, they're picking cotton in the field. She literally has just lost her baby. There's blood all over her dress. Um, And as she's crying, one of the Black men sees one of the slave um, owners walking over, right? Slave holders. Walking, I'm sorry, riding his horse over and to protect this black woman who's screaming and crying because she's just lost her baby. He calls him, he calls the slaveholder a cracker to distract him and incite a conflict between them to protect her. Um, and again, that same character loses his life protecting Janelle Monet's character, right? Those types of sacrifices by black men were actually constant throughout history and they remain to this day. But black men instead are framed as a group of men who don't protect, who don't sacrifice, who don't do anything. Right. And regardless of how many examples you pose. Right. This is the kind of narrative. So when you get back to Lovecraft Country, you still see this same kind of trope being played out. Right. Um, Yeah, that's the series I need to watch uh, next, Father uh, Raised by Wolves. Uh, Quad Wolf was telling me about it. I'm going to check it out. Uh, But I hear it's already got some problems to it. Uh, 382 watching. Please like, share, and subscribe, people. Um, I'm not going to be in here all night, but there's just a couple things that I wanted to get off. Um, Khalila says y'all should see the commentary in the official HBO Lovecraft group ran primarily by Black women. The mess they defended was wild. I can't imagine. I would like to be a fly on the wall, but I don't know how long I could sit through that. Um, black to the film and the book, the daughter is a boy into futurism. Yeah. There's some interesting things that, that happened with that. You, you just reminded me of another thing. Like I said, I wasn't going to try and go in depth because, uh, it, it really, you know, it really would do you credit to see each one. They got a lot of funding to do this. The special effects definitely cost money. Um, but in one of the more recent episodes, you actually see episode five, I believe you actually see, um, Letty's sister. She's larger, taller, darker skin. Uh, you see her being wooed by a white man and then given a potion that turns her white. She turns into a white woman and she's able to walk the streets as a white woman and experience white womanhood. There's even a point where because she's so disheveled and and caught off guard, because she just wakes up in the bed as a white woman, she doesn't know what's going on. She's had sex with this white man. He's not there. Now she's a white woman. She's walking the streets. And at one point she's so, you know, She's so disheveled and disoriented that she starts to have a little bit of a breakdown and the police drive up and immediately assume that the black males around her have accosted her. And they attack a little. He had to be like 12, 13. They attacked a little boy who they assumed was hurting her. Um, and you know, it takes her a while to actually say no. He didn't do anything. But this whole episode, she's toying with what it means to be a white woman. So she get, decides to go back into, a, you know, one of the the mall stores that she couldn't get a job in. And based on her qualifications, now that she's white, she's actually overqualified. So she's able to get the job, and so she's getting to experience, you know, the the kind of pleasures and benefits of white womanhood. Uh, while continuously also sleeping with this white man, which, again, was very reminiscent of a scene of from Antebellum, where you have uh, Gabby Sidibi, I forget, again, uh, Gabby's character. She is approached by, a, apparently, they don't show his face, a very handsome, wealthy white man, while sitting in a restaurant with Janelle, Janelle Monet's character. And uh, her and uh, the three, there's, there's another friend there, they're having dinner together, and the man sends over a drink to her. Now you picture that, Gabby Sidibi is sitting next to Janelle Monet, and a wealthy, handsome white man sitting at the bar sends her the drink. And he comes over to introduce himself, and Gabby checks him, corrects him, and tells him everything he did wrong in trying to woo her. And then hands her, uh, hands him her her phone number, and then announces that she's trying to have sex that night. So they need to go get wild and get in the streets. It, it, Similarly, in Lovecraft County, the larger, darker-skinned sister, who's sister to Latisha, sister to um, uh, Smollett's character, you know, she's actually having this sexual relationship with this white man, and but she's able to actually be a white woman. Whereas Gabby's character is able to, you know, operate kind of like a white woman, even though she's black, because of the kind of class advantages black women have enjoyed in the last few decades. In this supernatural context, this woman is able to actually be. Um, uh, a white woman. And so she kind of deals with that. And of course, she has her moment where she puts a stiletto in the anal region of a white man to kind of get back at it. But she doesn't give up her capacity to become a white woman. And by the end of the episode, you actually find that um, hold on, I'm pulling her picture up. So that's that's the character there. She plays Sister to Letitia or or Smollett's character, she actually by the end of the episode, um, not only does she keep the capacity to turn into a white woman, she finds out that the white man she's been having sex with is taking the same potion, and it's not that he's a white man; he's actually a white woman, and it's the same white woman from this magical you know family that's been kind of you know exploiting and manipulating the black folk here. She's the lead white woman, and her primary beef is that she's not been allowed into the kind of old boys club network. So by pretending to be a white man, she's trying to work her way into controlling that network. And she's using this black woman to do it. And she's manipulating her magically. She's having sex with her, all of these kind of dynamics. So symbolically, there's a lot going on that's pregnant, you know, in terms of of analysis, there's a lot we can do with that uh, in terms of what that means, right? To, so, If you look at the history of white feminists and their relationship to Black women um, and the kind of, you know, routes they took to inspire Black feminism, the, the contrasts and the similarities, there's some very interesting overtones that play out in this, you know, in terms of who's having sex with who or really who's quote-unquote fucking who and what that means symbolically in the story. All of that kind of plays into this in a very interesting kind of way. Right. But again, the same overtones I, I notice tend to take place where, yet again, men are considered the primary problem and women have to find a way to band together to kind of deal with them, right, in some kind of way, shape, or form. In the latest episode, you see them in Korea doing a flashback on Atticus's life as a soldier uh, through the eyes of a Korean woman who sees him kill her best friend. Right. And so in that way, black men in the Korean War become synonymous with white men because from the vantage point of a Korean woman, they're all soldiers coming from America. They do have this moment where she finds out that black men and even Korean American men are treated differently in America. And so she kind of gets a sense that there's a difference there. But again, the major overtones that mark the differences between black, white, Korean, whichever groups of men you want to look at are lightly kind of referenced, very lightly. There's not really much in-depth analysis there, in my opinion. Uh, Cousin Tita, appreciate that. So I talked about there being uh, a solution to this, right? I talked about you know finding a solution to this whole question of what we're calling, or what I'm calling, um, Black feminist... Slay porn. And what I mean by slay porn is is this idea of, you know, this intersectionalist idea that they are the most oppressed. And therefore, when it comes to their heroism in a movie, uh, they are more intelligent than everybody. They're more capable than everybody, most particularly black men. They need to lead, direct, or survive black men entirely to find their power. You know, the, the relationship with black men is always portrayed as antagonistic, right? And black men are the cause of it. And so in that, like I said, Black women either have to survive us, escape from us to find their power, or they need to lead us because we're like children. You know, this is what I mean by the concu We are concubines. We provide them sexual pleasure. We provide them sperm when they want to have children. And our ultimate purpose is to serve them. It's kind of taking the traditional idea of husband and turning it on its head. Yes, husband protects and provides. But in the Black gynocratic imagination, uh, protecting and providing is not considered a leadership role. It's considered a subservient role. So your idea, her idea of what protection and providing means is, yes, if there's a physical threat, you jump in front of her to save her. But at the same time, you do so at her direction. You know what I mean? She's in authority. So as much as we talk about this problems with th- these ideas, that, you know, you know, I saw some posts up, up recently where people were saying, you know, this whole question of having women submit is a problem. OK, I'm neither here nor there about that. But what I do find interesting is when it comes to portrayals of male submission, there's no problem. Nobody has an issue with that. As a matter of fact, I'm arguing that in a number of different productions, that is starting to become the, ha- the norm in terms of the representation of black men. So when you go see Antabellum, when you watch Lovecraft, you will see consistent examples of male servitude or what we could call male submission. And it's more than acceptable. It's lauded. Right. So to talk about female submission is is, you know, a crime to talk about male submission or to represent it in film and television or in fiction in general or any type of representational format. It's acceptable. And if anything, it's considered progressive and avant garde. Right. That's the job you have to play. But what is the solution to this? Well, y'all know lately I've been dealing with this question of the uh, black male political agenda. And I keep saying I'm going to do a show on this, but uh, I hadn't gotten around to it, but I will be very soon. Uh, and the show is going to deal with the philosophical underpinnings of the black male political agenda. And there are about seven, there are about seven that I'm going to talk about. The only one I'm going to. Well, I'll shout out a couple real quick. You know, I'll just take uh, I'll just take three right off. Um Oh, yeah. Black to the film. You're exactly right. Black women will submit to the white men of the film. Absolutely. That is another part of the narrative. Thank you for pointing that out. Yes. Submission is heretical, can't be brought up, at least in regard to black men. But submitting to white men is a whole different thing. But the idea in terms of black female-male relations is that he must submit to her, at least in this new avant-garde way of dealing with this. But the solution to this, you know, is in, in a couple of the philosophies that undergird the Black male political agenda. And I'll just name three of the seven, because I'm going to go in depth on the seven soon. Um, shout out to BGS. BGS is one of the ones that that really uh, foregrounded the concept of the Black Dynocracy. You know, by looking at the, you know, and this is how I argue for the existence of the Black Dynocracy, looking at the major institutions in the Black community. Whether you're talking about entrepreneurship, education, business, you know, whether you're talking about um, um, uh, employment, whether you're talking about the church, and there are a number of others we can look at, media representation. In each of these contexts, black men are not in positions of authority. Most of that authority is actually extending out of the white community, right? White society governs much of the, you know, many of the major institutions in the black community, but they have foregrounded black women and put them in positions, financed putting them in positions of authority in those major institutions. That said, when we talk about the black gynocracy, which again I refer to as a female patriarchy in our community, it's black women that are foregrounded in that process, and black males that are underdeveloped. And this creates, you know, this kind of dynamic where, you know, you have this question of black men following black women at the behest of institutions we don't control, right? That so, the, the what B- BGS was able to do, and you can check BGS more here on YouTube. You can find a number of his videos if you're not familiar. He's in the chat right now in the comments, uh, but if you look at his 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 videos on the black gynocracy it's very telling. Right, it's very telling because it it. it it, it allows us to have a conversation about a phenomenon that we've seen, but we're not, especially as Black men, we've not been allowed to talk about them. We've not been allowed to talk about them, right? The existence of this. And it does exist. This gynocracy does exist. Um, but, you know, so even if you look at Black political represent, representatives, elected officials, for the last two get decades, it's been overwhelmingly female. And that's very, been very much tied to education Something yet again, from kindergarten through 12th grade, black men are often uh, either barred from or rerouted into special ed and so on and so forth. So this is the kind of dynamic. So shout out to BGS for pointing out the existence of the black gynocracy and how it tends to function. The other point I want to shout out is um, Green Gorilla. Who uh, was listening to the show. I don't know if he's still in the comments. Check out his channel on YouTube. One of the points that he and I just recently had a discussion about last week on his show, I think last Friday, was this concept of ra- his concept of racial hypergamy. Right. I'm not going to go into depth on that here. We, have, we did a whole show about it. So you can look on Green Gorilla Show. It's an interview he and I did together talking about what racial hypergamy is. But essentially the element of it that I use for the black male political agenda is that. It's relationships between Black women and white institutions that stand in for Black men, right? That's the dynamic we're looking at. When I invoke the racial hypergamy concept, I'm talking about the institutional relationship between Black women and the state and the role the state plays in replacing Black men. Now, hypergamy is a concept you can find on YouTube that speaks to women, you know, edging up, finding new men that, to, you know, kind of improve their standing. But when you talk about racial hypergamy, it's a different thing. It talks specifically about the ways uh, the relationship black women have not only with white men, but also with the state. And that's not a relationship black men enjoy. As pointed out by Gigi, we don't have a hypergamous relationship with the state. We have a hypogamous, meaning that. um, it, we don't have institutions that lift us up simply because we exist. Just like I pointed to earlier with the, the, the new program for helping you know, pregnant Black and Pacific Islander women in San Francisco, or the grant for Black photographers, uh, but only Black uh, Black women that are photographers, right? These are just lightweight, recent examples of policies and practices that go back decades that prioritize and foreground Black women. That's not a relationship. Our relationship, Black men's relationship with the state, Perfect example would be the prison system. That does not elevate Black men's standing. It puts it down. It, 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 you know, In that way, it denounces us. So this is what hypogamous refers to. It's the opposite of building relationships that propel you further and upward. It's, it's relationships that actually devalue you. Well, Black men's relationship with the state is hypogamous. Black women's relationship is hypergamous. It advances them. And so uh, those two concepts, and I'm going to tie them together in a minute, and the third one, just for the sake of this discussion, I'm going to shout out Dr. Ronald Neal, right? Ronald Neal talks about Black male independence, Um, and he gives an example where he's talking on uh, Facebook about um, uh, Killer Mike and Killer Mike meeting with a Republican, uh, I want to say in the last month, uh, about his community and what can be done, so on and so forth. And he's chastised for it uh, by a number of people, including a number of Black women. And Dr. Neal points out the importance of having Black male independent thought, right? And this is, it. so when you look at these three concepts, right? And again, there are seven. So I'll go over those more in depth another, another time, another show. Um, but if you take just three of those seven concepts and you look at the existence of a gynocracy, right? the existence of a hypergamous relationship between Black women and the state that Black men do not enjoy. And then you connect that to a need for Black male independent thought, right? Just those three elements, even. I ain't even talked about the other four. Just those three elements point to a need for a way of addressing the world, a way of addressing phenomenon, a way of addressing politics, a way of addressing every major faction of life from an independent black male context, right? Asking questions about not just how, how does this just affect the black community? And there's nothing wrong with asking that question. I still support that. However, there's still an area, still space that we need to examine, particularly for black males. And we've not been trained to do that as black men. We've been trained to prioritize the community, which is often really, really the women, We've learned to think in terms of their needs, their worldviews, their interests, their focus. And black then becomes this idea about how we all exist, but only as it's characterized and internalized, you know, again, by women's viewpoints, women's worldviews. Black men have a distinct set of needs, issues uh, and concerns that often don't get brought up. Um, um. Uh, Shout out to Nameless Protagonist. Uh, Thank you very much for the support. Shout out to Blackfoot. Um, Let me see. Uh, Blackfoot asked the question, do you consider this misandry or benign feminist attempt at Black cultural uh, cultural realignment? Uh, I don't think those two things need to differ, really. Uh, I think misandry becomes the way in which you have a kind of benign feminist attempt. I mean, the benign aspect of uh, a black cultural realignment solely in the interest of black women is inherently misandrous. Um, but nonetheless, so y'all know black male political agenda, as we've seen, it covers a number of the, number of these points here, uh, family court reform mand- and mandatory DNA testing at birth, single sex education, uh, uh targeted homeless, pr- homelessness programs, as per what I was talking about a little earlier, uh, black men being, um, homeless to a great degree, especially coming out of prison, and yet you may have programs for ex-cons, but how many of them are targeted directly at black men? And that's for every one of these points on this list. How many of these ideas, there may even be policies already there for helping people in a given condition, but how many of them actually target black men, right? Unemployment programs, criminal sentencing reforms, right? So we have that. Abolishing the Duluth model, you know I cover these pretty much in every show, so you can screenshot them and look at them more in depth at your leisure, because um, we've kind of gone through a number of these. But I like to show them every show, and we are going to talk about a couple of new additions, right to the list. Um, this one I'll come back to in a moment. So, uh, but licensing, law enforcement, targeting cancer, campaigning. We found that black men die at the highest numbers when compared to white men, white women, and black women, and yet you'll find very few programs designed to target uh, cancer and black males in any significant way, right? Targeted small business support, I talked about that, um, and we covered a couple of these last week, uh, preparatory reading and STEM educational support, proxy violence, right, where women can actually use other men or the law, right, in their interest, you know, even in, in terms of controlling men, controlling or attacking men, using other men to do so, or uh, using institutions, meaning anything from the police to the family court as a way of controlling, right? To be appreciate that support, right? And then Social Security and life insurance family support was a new one added last week. Uh, we have a couple more, right? Now, again, before I dive in, what I'm saying to you is not only is the Black male political agenda the solution to this kind of rampant misandry and pop culture, as well as institutional misandry, it's also the philosophies that undergird the Black male political agenda that defend us, that actually provide the solution. Because again, if you take the black, the existence of the gynocracy, even just using that language, so that you can begin to see the way it functions, and and likely as a black male, the way it may have already functioned throughout your life, even though nobody called attention to it. That's part of you know that opens up a whole new door. If you bring in racial hypergamy, you can see the way the relationship to the state differs between us and how that can propel one and denounce another. And again, going back to Dr. Neal's black male independent thought, you get to actually see or black male independence, but but the independence and in thought worldview and 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 politics, you can see in which you know this way of readjusting your focus to really look at what's in the interests of boys and men in the black community is necessary, and that allows you to be to put yourself in a position to not only check these kinds of uh, of media programs that continue to propagate this idea of black male inferiority uh, and uh, black male uh, misandry, these kind of things. Now you can not only check those things, you can advance that to a political action. You can actually now say that I'm not going to support these kind of films. And you have a lot of brothers that would say that anyway. But now you can do so more full throatedly because you can say this. This is why I do not support the misandry in this kind of filmmaking, as opposed to I just don't want to see that shit. You know that's you know that's you'll hear a lot of brothers say stuff like that i just don't want to see it no we we can advance that i don't want to see it i'm not going to watch it and in fact i'm going to boycott it because it supports misandrous perspectives of black men see that that language changes how you relate to these things right and so that's what i'm saying the solution is the solution to this institutional anti-black misandry is to develop a consciousness of being able to see it for what it is and call it out and use that consciousness to mobilize everything from a political platform to, um, you know, a worldview, right? Um, But here, so this was a a new suggestion, came in anonymously, Um, brother wanted to stay anonymous, but he argued that we should consider, right, ending qualified immunity, right, often negotiated into union contracts, qualified immunity is a legal principle that grants government officials, especially law enforcement, performing discretionary functions immunity from civil suits unless the plaintiff shows that the official violated clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. Okay, So basically it it leaves them immune to civil suits uh, where their behavior uh, might have a chance of being checked and of course From there, they can often go on to another institution. So he argued that uh, one of the points of the Black male political agenda agenda would be to actually end qualified immunity. You know, so something to consider. Um, And I'm not at all arguing that everything on this list is in a finished state. Right now, this list is designed to generate thought among Black men about what actually works for us. And what we need to consider in terms of what changes need to be made for uh, black men's quality of life to to improve. right? The next one up, as you can see, number 22, require formal child support management reports. In essence, what this refers to is uh, what what tends to happen with the custodial parent and the child support payment, what they do and whether or not what they do with those monies is actually supervised, observed, reported upon, anything of that nature, receipts? Are receipts provided? And the answer is generally no. And so the argument here is that in terms of blackmail political agenda, there should be a push, right, to make sure that there is a reporting mechanism on behalf of the custodial parent who's taking child support payments and using them supposedly to take care of the child, and that that oversight should be designed to make sure that those monies are actually being spent on the well-being of the child. Right. So if it's going to food, clothing, you know, um, utilities, you know, housing or whatever, it is what it is. But if it's being used for for purposes that have nothing to do with the child, then that should be a different thing. And if black men have to go to jail, you know, in regard to, you know, whether or not they're able to pay uh, uh, child support, then there should be some degree of oversight about how that's spent. And uh, people should make sure that it's actually done in a manner that is consistent, consistently in support of the child. Uh, shout out to Darius. Shout out to Xavier. Appreciate that support. Right. Uh, so uh, this is a suggestion from Xavier in terms of that, uh, but something to consider. Right. Um, let me see. We had. OK. Here we go. And two more, and I'll probably uh, build on these a a little later uh, because we've been going for a minute and I just want to get this in. Uh, But 23. Right. This is another anonymous suggestion as far as paternity leave. And this one is actually a very particular type of paternity leave for fathers. And the argument is and there is some of this depending on where you are, but a more cogent, a more focused and purposeful policy policy around actually making sure fathers are able to have some type of paternal uh, parental leave uh, as well as mothers, right? Uh, Mike, appreciate the support. Um, okay, Mike says child support management process can be solved with blockchain technology. Mm, there you go. Interesting. Uh, but, it's, but see, again, it's, it's not even so much whether or not I agree or disagree with using blockchain technology. It's the importance of having the discussion, Right. I would have never heard that idea about using blockchain technology as a management process until we raised the discussion of whether or not child support payments should be monitored, should be overseen. You know what I mean? So the discussion to me is the point of importance. Uh, anyway, the next one has to do with an idea. Um, this is extended by another brother. Um, hold on. Where would it go? There we go. Let me just put this up here. And it has to do with this notion of genocide, right? And basically, what do I mean? Uh, the treatment of black males, particularly in the United States, but one can make the argument for a number of countries around the world, is that they are more often than not um, killed, left to die um, with very little reflection, recourse, opportunity for support, so on, right? And that said, there should be space for making a claim, you know, as the brothers suggested to the United Nations about um, genocide of black males. Now, looking at just the formal New Oxford American Dictionary definition of genocide, talking about the deliberate killing of a large group of people, especially those of a particular ethnic group or nation. But let's actually look at Let's look at how the United Nations talks about that. Okay. You can go to their website, un.org, and look up genocide prevention and the responsibility to protect. And they go into a distinct discussion about genocide itself, right? Where it comes from, uh, first coined by Polish lawyer Rafael Lemkin 1944, in his book, Access Rule in Occupied Europe. Um, talks about it as a crime uh, under international law by the United Nations General Assembly. And so when you begin to look at the qualifying concepts behind it, Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, um, in the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, or racial, or religious group as such, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, uh, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Um, these are important. I'm sorry, let me see if I can enlarge these. I apologize if that was too small uh, for you to see. Um, right. When you look at the definitions with analysis and with discussion, I think there's much here for Black men to take seriously. Uh, a few months ago, I pointed out an article that suggested that Black men really qualified uh, as being an endangered uh, group uh, and was actually, uh, I think the article was talking about how they should be welcomed in other countries as uh, really damn near refugees, right? When well, this is a similar kind of dynamic, when you look at the quality of life for Black males and you look at the conditions that actually promote death, right? Whether you're talking lack of employment, whether you're talking extreme homelessness, whether you're talking about hyper-incarceration, whether you're talking about limited access to medical care, um, uh, any of these contexts that you're looking at serve to, you know, diminish and underdevelop the quality of life for Black males. Uh, When you look at actual deaths, right, um, from life expectancy, uh, low life expectancy levels uh, when compared to uh, white men, women, and black women, right? You can, And Latinos and Asians, for that matter, you find black men are at the bottom of that list, right? When you're talking about, again, I brought up cancer earlier. You can talk about in terms of HIV, like there's so many different categories, heart disease, diabetes, you know, there's so many different areas where black men find themselves on the bottom of the list. And what we tend to do often is individualize the problem, And it just becomes about, well, you as an individual didn't take care of yourself. You didn't do as good a job of this and this. You know what? There's a place for that discussion. That's not where I want to have it. I think you can have that discussion. But when you step back and look at the data and you start to see that Black men as a group, as a demographic, as a category, suffer to a far greater extent when it comes to a cross section of these issues than any other group, now you have to raise new questions because it's not just about individual behavior. Now you have to be able to look at it systemically, right? And I suggest that the response should also be systemic, right? Because some of these problems are larger than we tend to give them credit for. Um, let me see. There is. There are. Um, there are a couple of stories that I got this week that inspired This question of systemic treatment, not only in terms of the major institutions that we use, but also in terms of um, how we tend to function in community and families, how black men are seen. There's two cases brought on by two people that I care a great deal for who told me stories. And um, the first story was a, a good friend of mine, his uncle. Um, was being taken care of by his wife. The uncle was in his early 70s. His wife is in her early 60s. I think about three weeks ago, he went to the hospital. He was delirious. He couldn't string together a coherent sentence. He had lost over 100 pounds in a matter of, what, a week to two weeks. And by the time he got to the hospital, the only thing they could say upon analysis was that he was severely malnourished. When they went into the home, they found that she was living in one of the bedrooms that had a king size bed, a television, the whole kind of setup. She was taking care of him. He could not walk. The room he was in had a futon on the floor. And that was it. He wasn't being fed. He wasn't being taken care of. Uh, And apparently, you know, this is a brother who's, who's been a nationalist for decades. You know, he, he's been arguing for the upliftment, you know, of the black community and so on and so forth. Yet, he's living on this futon and being malnourished. When He gets to the hospital, the family is alerted. He eventually starts to recover. It's been three weeks to my understanding since he's been in the hospital and he started to recover. He's able to speak and clear sentences again. He's taking food. He's able to eat. He's been growing some of his, getting some of his strength back. His wife has not visited the hospital since he's been turned in or brought to the hospital. She hasn't called. She hasn't visited. And when a family member went over there, she was going to some kind of party when he saw her. My point is that Had he not been brought in, the family pressured her, apparently, to bring her to the hospital, if I'm not mistaken. Had he not been brought in, he probably would have died. And the issue that my good friend, whose uncle this is, was concerned with is that they only found out on a fluke. They only were able to catch it, you know, on a fluke. Nobody knew that this was happening. She was managing all of the communication that came into the house. So nobody knew he was on the verge of death. Second story that came in came from a, a another good friend of mine. And she called me in tears to tell it because her cousin is in his seventies. And apparently this also was several weeks ago, about a month ago, in fact, he sent her a text saying he was on his way for the, to the hospital. He suffered from COPD, right? The last they had heard of him was that text. He died four days later. The family didn't know. They actually had to call the police. I don't know the name of the system. I'm going to call it OnStar, but that may be wrong. They were trying to use OnStar to find out where his car was last located, but they couldn't use it without a police report. So it took them several days to get the police to file a report, whatever. Long story short, they finally got a detective to find him. He had died four days after the last text and had been dead for at least three weeks before they even found out. He died due to COPD in a hospital room by himself. No support. No calls, nothing. And she's a distant, remote you know, cousin. It's not like she's, you know, wife, mother or anything of that nature. I raised these two stories because. As I was looking into this question on quality of life for Black men in the last six months, I have heard story after story after story of Black men dying in isolation, dying alone, and even if they're killed by police officers, their deaths being used for the political advancement of platforms that have very little to do with them. Even if you look at George George Floyd, there was a there was a a, a policy that was put on the books that was supposed to lessen uh, police brutality. On behalf of George Floyd, it's actually named after him. And yet, when you look at the actual policy points in the bill, none of them have anything to do with black men directly. Right. The quality of life. The the possibility of leaving this earth with very little support, a very little acknowledgement and quite possibly um, no mention of your life at all. Right. This has been happening over and over and over again. Now I've asked for these stories, so I'm not asking you. You know, I'm not not feeling sorry for me or any of that. I asked for these stories because I wanted to somewhat, even if informally, just kind of chronicle what these black men experience. Because more often than not, what we find is nobody cares, except to the extent it benefits their platform or their agenda. Nobody cares. I'm trying to get black men to care about each other because if you can end up 70 years old dying in a hospital bed by yourself and nobody even knowing you left this earth for another damn near month or dying in your own home that you bought and the very person who's supposed to be taking care of you is waiting for you to leave this earth so she can get your pension. If those things can happen and nobody say anything, At what point do we start to look out for each other? That's the question I have. What I often find is black men attacking each other, um, you know, arguing with each other, you know, competing with each other. those those are things that are built into society. I get it. But we have to turn this around on some level because nobody else is coming for us. It's just not happening. And these stories, man, I'm getting more and more of them. I'm getting calls from brothers who are on the verge of that themselves, looking at the abyss and deciding whether or not they want to jump into it. And ironically enough, the only thing that keeps them from doing it is a a damn phone call from somebody that cares, even someone they've never even met. When I can talk to brothers who are on the verge of suicide and just having a conversation or a text exchange, and that's the only thing keeping them from doing it, How excluded from human contact have a lot of these brothers been? And I'm not talking about COVID either. Didn't take COVID for that to happen. This shit is happening a lot. And I find more and more black men at the bottom of this. And I really hope we can at least support each other because I'm not finding anybody else does or is. Anyway. um, here. Y'all know how I do this. Y'all know the deal, right? I'm here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking fallacies, ATM machines, lottery tickets, brainless henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, emotional tampons, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, warriors, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your attention, time, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you and remember Your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth, brothers. Peace. (music) you <music>